Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. I spent 30 years in the police and I did a lot of interesting jobs during that time at many ranks. When I left the police, I wrote a book all about my experiences, the title of which, unsurprisingly, is Tango Juliet Foxtrot. But you'll need to read the book to understand what TJF stands for. This podcast is all about British policing the good, the bad, and the ugly. If you're interested in what policing's really like, this is definitely the podcast for you. In it, I interview lots of people who've done some amazing things in policing, and I also give you my thoughts on what's been going on in the news to help you understand how it all works, or doesn't work sometimes. Caution is advised, as some of the topics can be distressing, and there's some swearing from time to time. So, here we go. Hello folks, I thought I'd uh, do a little bit of a bonus episode. I don't know why I call it bonus, because that makes it sound as if... um, you know, you're having to pay for it or uh, or I'm getting something out of it or I just thought uh, sometimes it's useful to do a few, cover off a few bits and bobs in between the more typical interviews because sometimes you have a period where there's an awful lot going on in policing uh, and that has definitely been the case in the last uh, two or three weeks. Um, there's also a bit of... Uh, sort of a few developments I just want to talk about, about about the book or more specifically an audiobook. So before I get into what I want to sort of say today, uh, it'd be worth just listening to an interview with a, I believe, a Northumbria officer from the northeast of England who rang into an LBC phone-in yesterday where Sheila Fogarty was talking about the revelations in the HMIC report published yesterday, was it yesterday? I think it was yesterday, talking about the unbelievable number of vetting failures that they uncovered when they did a review of police vetting processes. So this was also linked to the... um, Sarah Everard murder, and I think it was commissioned by the previous Home Secretary, Priti Patel, uh, asking to look at the levels of police vetting and what they've uncovered has been really, really shocking. Um, and as part of that phone in, this officer rang in, and I just thought it'd be really worth you listening to what he has to say. So I'll let you listen to that now. Uh, Rob has called from Newcastle. Hello, Rob. Hi, how are you doing? I'm fine, thanks. Yeah, you are a serving officer. Uh, I am, yes. I, um, <clears throat> I have over 20 years in. Um, I guess the point I was trying to, or wanted to make was I'm often speaking to people um, in in the police who've got a similar end service with me. And we always, and we have for the last sort of three or four years, talked about the fact that corruption is almost certainly going to increase in, in the police. Why? And that's, well, it's simply because the job isn't as valuable anymore. You know, like when we joined, like way back in the mid nineties, the pay the, the pay was good in compared, you know, in comparison to other jobs at the time. The pension was good in comparison to other jobs. 
you know, the, the job satisfaction was good, the workload was manageable. But all of those things have all changed over the last 20 years. It's much worse now. I mean, the, the, pay, is, the pay is simply not as good as it was back then. So you see more and more officers that are just are so much more reliant on doing overtime shifts just to bring enough money just for, for them to live. So, so if you've got that throughout your organisation, it's almost inevitable that you're going to see corruption because... What, what kind of, of corruption? Do you mean financial corruption? Yeah, you'll see that. You'll definitely see you'll see you'll see corruption all across in every way that corruption can be. You know whether that's financial corruption. You know whether that's just people not not caring so much about about the job they do. I mean, it, it, it spreads to people with my le- level of service. You know, I think there's no denying that. I don't feel the same way that I felt. You know, all those years ago because. And is it? And and do you feel undervalued by pay or by more than pay? Well, I think I think it's I think it's I think it's multiple things. I think pay is definitely one of them. I mean, you know, you think year after year after year, any pay rise you get is below the cost of living, and most and actually half of the time we've had pay freezes. Now, but but the workload that comes through the door gets greater and greater and greater, and the expectation of the public is greater and greater and greater. So you think to yourself, well, what am I working harder for? Who am I working harder for? Nobody values me. The government don't value me. They've, they don't pay me any more money. They've given me pay freezes. And they've actually, they've took, a, they've took an axe to me pension now. So that's not as valuable as it was. Um, and there's no doubt about it. There's, you know, the, 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 the respect that there used to be for the police amongst the public, it's just not there anymore, you know. But that's a two-way street, isn't it? You'll accept that, will you, Rob? Um, I, I do. I do, but I think, you know, I don't think the police, I don't think you hear as much, you know, good news police stories, you know, as maybe you should. The, the media love a good, bad police story, but you never you never really hear much when the police do good jobs. And I think, and actually, I don't think it helps when you when you see all of these documentaries about the police, you know, where they spend 100 hours of filming and then they use 30 minutes to create a, a, a documentary and yeah. young people are watching it and the, they're thinking... On the subject of police, I mean, the... the Reporting of police malpractice has been quite common in the last couple of years, for sure. But that's because there's been an awful lot of it unearthed one way or another. But frequently when crimes are solved, serious crimes are solved and then go to court and conclude, um, there's a lot of reporting on how effective and smart the policing was. And, you know, we've, through the police, and I won't say much more because it's, it's an ongoing case, but through the police investigation around the killing of little Olivia Pratt-Corbell in Liverpool and the, you know, the shooting of, of her mother as well. Um, you know, the, the, it's been clear because we've given police time to come on air and talk about it. We've broadcast their press conferences. It's been clear the the care and the painstaking work that's going on in that, uh, in, in that investigation. And, you know, when I talked about, I've got a podcast out about stalking, and, and in that I reflect on both the good policing that is happening and the improving policing that is happening, but also some of the terrible policing around stalking that takes place. But, 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 but which, one gets the, which one gets the most hits? You know well, what I mean? If well, you, it's if all in the a, same package have, in my if case. You, if but you have a good story and a bad story, the bad story is always going to be the one that gets talked about most because it's the most interesting to the public to read. The public just expects you to do a good job. Well, you sadly, know, even know, when don't... it's a good story about good policing, it's a it's a bad story because it's about it's normally about the murder of somebody innocent, isn't it? You know, so it's n- none of them are good stories. It's just. I mean, I don't think I don't think it's the report necessarily, or the, or the good or the bad. That, but actually, make, which is which is I think is 
reduce the standards of officers coming through. I just think the job's not as valuable as it used to be. I think you get, you're getting officers now who aren't joining and think that it is a 30-year career. These are, these are officers who can leave at any point because they can actually work in Weatherspoons and get the same amount of pay as they can in the police. You know, there's nothing keeping them in the police. There's no pension to keep them there. They know, you know, they know for a fact that if they stay in the police, they're going to get pay rises that are, are always lower than the, than the cost of living. It's never, they're never going to be higher. So gradually over the next 20, I mean, if you think about the economic position now, you know, next year when inflation's 11%, I guarantee you we'll only get a 2% pay rise. And it'll be a one or two percent pay rise yeah. for the next ten and years. And nurses and others as well. And and are you going to stay in the force, Rob? Well, I'll have to really because I mean it's not it's probably not worth me going at my stage. I've only have about five years left right. before I have to go. So it's not it's not really. So there's no financial benefit to me leaving now. But if I could think back, you know, to those people who are joining now, I, I honestly I, I can't understand why you would want to join the police now. There's no there's just nothing. In, there's no value in joining it. Like the, the satisf- even the satisfaction you got of, of putting bad people behind prison, it's so removed now because everything's just this a slog to get things to court. You know, what would used to be maybe two or three weeks to get the paperwork put in and someone to court. It's now six months a year because of all the processes you have to go through, and you know you spend eighty percent of your time in front of a computer just typing away. That's that, and that's the reality of being a police officer. Eighty percent of my Admin. time is spent. It, is 80% of my time I sat sit in front of a screen filling in documents to send to the CBS most of the time. That's not it. You know, and it's it's just, it's mind-numbing. And do they, do they tend to be um, statements? Because that's quite important work, isn't it? It's evidence. Yeah, like, I mean, look, every every part of the process of getting somebody to court now is, is much longer and much more drawn out because the material that you have to provide to the CBS now is an awful lot more. You know, you used to be able to provide a summary of, of an offence to the to the CBS for them to give a decision on whether to charge someone or not. But now you, you pretty much have to have a trial-ready file handed over to the CBS before they make a charging decision. Mm. Now, that can, that can take... I mean, I have cases that are over two years old and I'm still having to get that material to provide to the CBS. But by the time it gets to the court, the victims don't care anyway because they've moved on with their lives. You can't get well, there. Um, lots of victims I speak to still do care when they're waiting for their case to come to trial. Perhaps some move on with their lives, but, but not all. Rob, I have to leave it there for time reasons, but that's a, that's a sorry... A sorry picture that you paint. Thanks very much, Rob. Rob in Newcastle. We're getting loads and loads of calls on this. Both your... Yeah, I just thought uh, it'd be interesting for you to to hear that. I think Rob did a really good job there of um, articulating a lot of the issues around policing at the moment. And, you know, when I wrote my book, which is almost 12 months ago now, since it was first published, I think it was published on the 13th of November last year, so much has happened in policing, hasn't it? And and sadly, not in a good way. And um, I'm really quite shocked at how quickly things appear to have gone downhill. Um, I, I genuinely, and I think anyone who listens to anything I say or anything I've written generally knows that my heart is very much for policing. I am a huge advocate of policing. I want the police service to succeed. Um, but it just doesn't feel as if that's happening at the moment. And um, I'm not quite sure what the answer is. There just seem to be so many things broken.
in policing. And, you know, when I, when I wrote the book, I, I was very keen to try and end on a positive note. Uh, when I, I sort of tried to answer the question, do I personally believe that the job is fucked? Uh, and I said, no, I don't. I think it's well on the way to being fucked. And there's so many things that need to change and improve. But I was broadly hopeful about the way um, the way forward out of all of this. Um, but I've got to say, I'm not I'm not as hopeful as I was 12 months ago. Uh, or it wasn't 12 months ago I wrote the book. It was real, realistically, it was probably more like, you know, two years ago since I wrote the book. Um, but I, I'm definitely not as optimistic now as I as I was then. I think there are just so many things that need to change. And it gives me no pleasure whatsoever to say that. Uh, not least of which is because I'm actually working for uh, a tech company. Uh, I'm one of the co-founders of the of the company. And, um, you know, our, our entire business model is based on wanting to help policing deal with uh, crime involving technology um, and what we've produced is is stunningly good and uh, you know I uh, the Aquila is sponsors this this podcast as well which is which is a nice thing to do to sort of try and help help the company uh, and I genuinely believe that you know what we're doing will dramatically improve the police response to crime and improve crime outcomes and detections and uh, support victims and support police officers and what they do. So I've kind of got this weird um, sense at the moment that things are just so bad for policing, but I kind of want them to be good. I really do. Um, but every time you open the newspaper, or I don't open newspapers, every time you turn on the radio, or every time you fire up the uh, BBC News, it just seems to be another new revelation of things going wrong. And there's a, um, you know, I've had quite a thoughtful time since interviewing Ron Winch, who was the university senior teaching fellow at, at Birmingham City University. I find that really interesting to talk about how how new recruits are being trained, uh, and then and then it was equally fascinating, uh, and not, but 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 actually more alarming than fascinating to to talk about to talk with Tom Murray in the last podcast about the direct entry detective program, which sounds like a slow another slow moving car crash for policing, where you're parachuting in basically members of the public into detective roles and then expecting them to know what the hell they're doing without having ever been on the front line, without ever having dealt with a victim of crime, without ever having dealt with people on the street who, who routinely tell you lies. You know, all of that stuff that we took for granted when we started our careers as police officers is not is not happening for them. So how the hell they expect them to uh, deal with, um, 
you know, offenders and to try. I mean, it completely explains why the detection rate is so low. And, uh, but of course, this process, they're so heavily invested in it now, and there's this massive national shortage for detectives. So I, I suppose that's, you know, I don't suppose there isn't, there's a plan B around that. Um, and then when you look at, the stuff that was coming out of the Louise Casey report. I appreciate that's only the Met, but clearly that's going to be, those issues are going to exist in, in other forces, particularly the larger, probably urban forces, I would imagine. And then the, the revelations from HMIC that literally just make your hair stand on end about the, the number of people who they've identified who are, have got links to organised crime, who've got uh, allegations of sexual assault, uh, theft, all sorts of, uh, you know, things that render them, or you would like to think, would render them wholly unsuitable to be in the police service. And yet, because there's been this huge pressure uh, to get people through the door, uh, they are clearly giving them the benefit of the doubt. But of course, all you're doing is storing up trouble for the future. And I think what um, what Rob was saying in that interview with LBC, when he was describing uh, the collapse of morale, the sense that they don't feel valued, the government don't care about them, nobody cares about them, they're trying to service a criminal justice system that is absolutely on its knees. Uh, a crime, I mean, what the fuck is going on with the Crime Prosecution Service that they are asking for a trial-ready file before they authorise a fucking charge, for God's sake. I mean, what the fuck? I'm sorry to swear like this, but you just think, what the fuck is going on with the Crime Prosecution Service to, to ask people to do that? It's madness. It's utter, utter madness. So you can see why people aren't arresting anyone. You can see why, uh, you know, they're trying to bin off as many criminal allegations as they possibly can as early as possible so they don't end up having to do this ridiculous uh, bureaucratic exercise of, of, going, of, of treating every single case that you put before the CPS as if it, it, it's going to court the next day. I mean, it's just utter utter madness so you know and then you look at there's other things uh you look at uh there's an article a really interesting article on policing insight which is uh, uh my podcast actually goes out syndicated on their policing tv and it talks it's a brilliant article written by a chap called ian wiggett and he talks about the impact of the churn of officers, uh, in other words, the numbers of officers leaving the police uh, versus the numbers who are um, needing to be recruited. So um, I feel on the basis that I give them episodes of my podcast for free, I feel entitled to, to quote at length from his article. Um, so apologies, pleasing insight, if I'm breaching your copyright, but hey-ho, we can have that conversation offline. So 
Uh, I'm going to read sort of chunks from this article because it really, I, it really, I find it really quite shocking. And this is where this is part of the reason why I am beginning to think sadly that the police, the job is fucked. Basically, he goes on to talk about. I'll, I'll, I'll read from the start of the article. There's always been a level of churn in policing with people leaving and joining the service, just like any other organisation. For long periods of time, that churn has been broadly in balance with changes occurring at manageable pace. Forces could roughly predict recruitment needs, training capacity, internal promotions and movements into specialist posts. However, after 2010, those expectations were thrown in the air. Recruitment stopped, training was cut and experience leached away. There was a growing national shortage of detectives. Teams were merged and units closed. Workloads grew while pay rates and pension benefits were cut. In 2019, the pattern flipped again. Large numbers had to be recruited and quickly. This was growth at a rate not seen before and it has created its own pressures. Recruitment and training absorb time and resources. Those new recruits then move into frontline teams where supervision and experience levels are already under strain. Officers continue to leave the service, of course. Last year, the number jumped from 6,018 to 18,117. Forces typically have to recruit, and this is, a, this is an amazing statistic, wait for this. Forces typically have to recruit 29 new joiners to achieve a net growth of 10. And there are signs that some forces are struggling to attract enough candidates. Lever rates vary across England and Wales, with some forces losing many more than others. Forces are under pressure to meet their recruitment targets, and there are gaps that need to be filled in high-pressure units. It's created a risky mix, and the new Met Commissioner, Sir Mark Riley, has already said he's concerned about the speed of hiring new officers. It's hard to convey the scale and pace of change in the police officer workforce during the past three years. Now get this, this is another one that'll make your hair stand on end. There have been 37,800 new joiners since March 2019, which equates to over a quarter of the current officer strength. These new officers will still be in training and also filling frontline operational roles. During the past year, Gloucestershire took in 82 new recruits and 24 transferees to achieve a net growth of 13. Avon and Somerset took in 245 new recruits and 40 transferees to achieve a net growth of, wait for it, 60. So I'm not going to read the whole article because I probably will end up breaching their copyright. But... Um, Oh yeah, that number, the Met's interesting. The Met required 3,093 recruits to grow by 1,029. Oh my God. So all of this stuff around vetting, I mean, you can see how this then plays out whenever you're taking, when, when, when they're in such a panic to try and get people through the door, um, you can hardly be surprised that... Uh, you know, the vetting standards then slip. Um, it goes on to say, more officers are leaving their, their service early. In March this year, it was reported that 9% of those recruited in the uplift programme had left before completing their training. The attrition rates ranged from over 19% in Northamptonshire to under 4% in Cumbria and North Wales. 
This led to concerns about the selection process. Northamptonshire Chief Constable Nick Adderley had previously warned that some had left their first had left after their first self-defence training class, and others had not realised they would be working weekends. And it goes on. Uh, it's worth it's worth you know it's worth having a look at that article if you um, if you subscribe to Policing Insight, you might be able to get behind the paywall, or maybe if you're a serving officer, you might you know, I know they they give it to a lot of forces for free, but um, but yeah, it, it paints a very um, very worrying picture. Um, and then there's another article, don't worry, I'm not going to read it all out to you, because um, I love you too much to do that. Uh, this is in the conversation, now you can, this isn't behind a paywall, so you can look at it, look at this yourself. It's in a, um, it's, a it's, it's a, they call it the conversation, and they say, academic rigour with journalistic flair. So it's, they cover all, all sorts of issues, environment, energy, uh, health, politics, science and technology. And this article is all about policing and police specifically around police re resignations. And uh, the headline is, police officer resignations have risen by 72% in the last year. And we asked former officers why. So this is based on uh, current research by, I believe, the uh, University of Portsmouth, uh, Dr. Sarah Charman. Uh, oh, no, sorry. Oh, Professor. Sorry. Do beg your pardon, Sarah. Professor Sarah Charman from Portsmouth uh, University. And Gemma Tyson, give her a shout out, Senior Lecturer in Criminology at the University of Portsmouth. And it starts off by saying, policing has long been known as a job for life, with low rates of leaving and high rates of loyalty. A career of 30 years or more was very much the norm. However, times have changed. Government figures show that the number of voluntary resignations from the police service in England and Wales has increased by 72% from 1,996 in 2021 to 3,433 in 2022. So it's gone up by 72% in one year. Voluntary resignations now account for 42% of all police leavers compared to 33% in the previous year. And just to put that in context, a decade ago in 2012, there were 1,158 voluntary resignations accounting for just 18% of leavers. In just 10 years, voluntary resignations from policing have increased by 196%. So you can see why I'm not massively optimistic. It would, it would, you'd need to be the most Pollyanna-ish. Um, sorry, that's a bit of a look it up, Google it. Um, you need to be the most um, blindly optimistic person not to see that the net result of all of the things that have been happening recently, plus the statistics that I've just quoted at you there, create a real problem. And, um, you know, and I know some people say, oh, Ian, you need to get over yourself talking about Theresa May. But this, all of this, all of it can be traced back to Theresa May and David Cameron. Cameron. If, if they hadn't did what, done what they did in 2010, none of this would be happening. The police service would carry on, wouldn't be perfect, it'd still have scandals, it'd still have 
you know, all sorts of things going on that, you know, it always has been like that. I'm sure a lot of the stuff around, you know, misogyny, allegations of misogyny and racism and, you know, corrupt practices, all of those things I'm quite sure would still be coming out in the way that they have done. But what we wouldn't have, if we wouldn't have this service where there is a, a palpable sense of desperation um, and a complete collapse in morale, it seems, uh, combined with growing levels of public dissatisfaction about the, the way that they are, um, in the service that they are receiving from the police. So there you go. Sorry about the swearing, but honestly, it really does my fruit in sometimes. Um, right, just to uh, have a complete change of tack just for a few moments, just want to talk about um, a bit of a development. So, as I say, the book was published 12 months ago. Um, lots of people have asked about whether it's going to be an audiobook. So I pushed that back to the publishers and the net result from the publishers was uh, no, we've got no intention of, of making an audiobook. Um, so I said, okay, in that case, you can, you'll need to release me from the contractual obligations that, that, uh, that I'm under in order to allow, allow me to do an audiobook uh, for those people who want to listen to it rather than read it. And, and they were very happy to do that. So I gave it some thought as to, okay, what am I, how am I going to do this? Um, so that result is that I'm going to create my own audiobook uh, of Tango Juliet Foxtrot. Uh, guess who's going to be reading it? Correct. Um, me. And I'm going to be, it's going to be uploaded onto Audible. However, because I love you so much, and because I'm good like that, I'm also going to put each individual chapter onto the podcast. And I know that, you know, some people would say, well, why would you do that? You know, why would you give it away? Well, my view is, it's my book. If I want to give it away, I'll give it away. So um, uh, I think having it on aud Audible for people around the world, you know, because people do listen to this from around the world, all over the world, actually. It's interesting looking at where people listen to it from. If people want to buy the, the, the Audible book and 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 then listen to it in a oneer without the annoying, you know, having to flip from maybe podcast to podcast, chapter to chapter, so that you can get it in a oneer and pay for it on Audible. Uh, if you want to listen to it uh, chapter by chapter in the podcast, uh, then you can do that as well. Um, you're welcome. Um, it'll also be going to Policing Insight and they will uh, put it on their police TV. So there you go. That's my gift to you. Call it an early Christmas present. Uh, so it's probably going to start, those chapters are probably going to start appearing in the next, I don't know, next couple of weeks, I suppose, once I get my shit together. Right. Uh, sorry about the rant. Sorry about the swearing. Um, I'm sure my views and feelings are probably echoed by a lot of you as well. Anyone who actually cares about policing will be feeling exactly the same way. 
ceiling. Oh, <laughs> 